speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. esteemed listeners, I have heard in the ancient podcasts of the Arabians that Dan the modern hermeticist, on being asked what on this stage, so to say, of the internet, seemed to him most evocative of wonder, replied that there was nothing to be seen more marvelous than Ted Hand, and that celebrated exclamation of Hermes Trismegistus, what a great miracle is Ted Hand, Esculapius, confirms this opinion. here today with Ted Hand, a teacher and independent scholar. Hi, Ted. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. How's, the, uh, oh, how's the weather down there? <laughs> you know, I'm enjoying a nice hotel stay in the lovely city of Monterey, California, so it's a nice fresh coastal breeze right now. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Monterey was the um, setting of uh, many surfer movies. Right, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, have a couple of really cool things going on that I think we should talk about. First, you studied angelology. Yeah, I, I was working on Pico della Mirandola, who's a uh, Renaissance guy. He was the uh, the Count of Concordia, and he um, got himself in a bit of trouble with the old Inquisition for suggesting that magic and Kabbalah are the uh, best way to prove the divinity of Christ and uh, various other uh, heretical propositions which he wanted to defend in a giant uh, disputation of uh, 900 conclusions mm -hmm. he, he wrote what's considered one of the classics of the renaissance the oration on the dignity of man um as well as some other little texts that uh, like i said got him in a bit of hot water uh out of which he was uh, rescued by cosimo de medici the uh you know the 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 republican at the time and mm -hmm. um and uh he, uh, he he was also involved in some disputes with uh, Marsilio Ficino over the meaning of uh, magic and Neoplatonism and metaphysics and stuff. So uh, so there's a lot for the uh, the interested uh, hermeticist. How did that tie into angelology, though? Maybe I don't. Isn't angelology like the study of angels? So yeah. So in in his oration on the dignity of man, um, Pico said that man can become like an angel. Um, he's doing what Dan Atrell has started calling uh, some kind of angelomorphic mysticism, <laughs> where he's um, he's following this guy Pseudo Dionysius, who he just called Dionysius the Areopagite. He didn't realize he was a pseudo. Who is this Neoplatonist uh, Christian writing in the uh, fifth century or so? Um, and uh, elaborated this whole mystical theology and the concept of angelology as we know it. Which was basically a way of expounding this um, this Neoplatonic cosmos rooted in the thinking of uh, Proclus and and Plotinus and Iamblichus, and mm -hmm. so uh, so Dionysius actually uses the term theurgy all over the place, and it's kind of um, it's kind of like this this magical cosmos and the way that our uh, Renaissance guys saw the cosmos. Um, but, you know, for Dionysius, he's using theurgy to understand sacramental theologies. He's trying to understand what the Christian um, rituals like the Eucharist are doing. And uh, he sees that as similar to the way that the Neoplatonists saw what they were doing with their religious rituals. And so he uses the theory of theurgy. And I got interested in the way that Pico was uh, getting co-opted by later Christian Kabbalists like John Dee, who was having conversations with angels using these uh, grimoire techniques. Mm -hmm. But he was also, uh, in addition to using these you know, conjuring books, um, he was deeply involved in the Neoplatonism of uh, Ficino and Pico. And so John Dee, um, there's this uh, annotation to his copy of Pseudo-Dionysius where John Dee is like writing the names of the angels that he discovers in his grimoire books and, you know, trying to like process uh, his whole experience of summoning angels. 
with reference to the classics of uh, of his own Christian tradition of angelology. All right. I guess I honestly did not even know what to expect about angelology. I didn't realize that it was uh, that it was tied to Pico and stuff. And that's really fascinating. The wait, what was Dan's? Uh, what was Dan saying? The angel uh, angelomorphic. He uh, so Pico says man has these like seeds in him of like all things, and depending on which seeds he is going to kind of put his will toward. Um, he can mature into an animal or he can mature into an angel. Is right? that can... through metempsychosis or through just like in the body or in your... Yeah, sort of like in the body. Yeah, it's not wow. about sort of like being reincarnated as an angel, but it's about becoming an angel kind of here and now. Um, so yeah, Pico sort of advances this mysticism where one is kind of imitating the angels and aspiring to be like them and sort of becoming angelic. Uh, all right. I can see how that would be totally influenced by um, Kabbalah too. Although, okay. So we should like for the listener, we should probably fill in a little bit of the details here. So Pico de la Mirandola was, uh, he lived in the, at the end of the 15th century. Right. Uh, he was born in like 14, the 1460s and died in the 1490s. Um, by poison, <laughs> right? Sadly, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and so during this period of time, this was basically uh, like a Pico and uh, Ficino sort of launched the Italian Renaissance. You know, so um, so without them, we never would have had John D. We never would have had Robert Flood. We never would have had Agrippa. We never would have had any of the cool people that occultists like to latch onto. Uh, we probably also never would have had, um, you know, capitalism, which would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> One wonders. But, you know, the good, the bad, they, they always go hand in hand. Um, so, so Pico and, um, and his circle down in Florence, they were basically the first ones in a long time in Europe to get access to all of those classic dudes that you were talking about. Uh, Proclus and Plotinus and Diablicus, like all of that stuff was being published in like Florence and Venice, uh, translated and published for the first time uh, into Latin and European languages ever, unless you can't count, well, except unless you want to count Greek. <laughs> um, so, so they were really kind of like on the bleeding edge of all this stuff. Like to them, this was sort of, I mean, I guess today it would be sort of the equivalent of uh, if, um, like Jobs and Wozniak hadn't invented an Apple computer, but it like dug it up and been like, Oh my God, the ancients had this computer. Let's create right. a spreadsheet and change the world or whatever. So, so it's it, it sort of, um, it's difficult for us to understand probably the level of excitement that they must've had coming across this ancient knowledge that was just sort of like, because yeah, I mean, I, so, so they, they probably already had, uh, pseudo Dionysius, right? So he was, right. He was already extant, but then they were getting older stuff that was confirming it, or sort of like the stuff that Pseudodionysius had talked about. Um, and that's kind of fascinating, too. Like, you were talking about Pseudodionysius using the word theurgy all over the place, but when you look at then, like, uh, Plotinus and Iamblichus, they had arguments about theurgy. Right. So, so there was kind of like, as they were translating this stuff, they were uncovering this sort of, like, depth of mystical philosophy which must have been fascinating so so Ficino wait just do people say Ficino or did they say Ficino uh, Ficino Ficino all right cool so Ficino was the one doing most of the translating right uh yeah he also translated the works of Plato and mm -hmm. the Corpus Hermeticum right the uh, right. the legendary writings attributed to Hermes Trismegistus which he believed actually were written by the ancient Egyptian sage of of legend. Yeah, yeah, which would be awesome if it was true. Um, right. So, but you were you were just saying a little bit ago that that Pico and Ficino had a disagreement that they yeah, kind of... and you know I'm glad that you mentioned the differences between um, Iamblichus and uh, Plotinus. Right. It's mm -hmm. actually um, Plotinus's student Porphyry who Iamblichus is arguing with in the De Mysteries also oh, translated right. by Ficino. And, um, yeah, we see some differences between, you know, Plotinus is sort of more the pure mystic 
whereas Iamblichus wants to interact with uh, with the spirits in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Iamblichus sees theurgy as interacting with the gods through these intermediary beings, um, you know, like angels and whatever, and heroes and and daimones and you know all of these uh, these these. Uh, creatures of the intelligible world that we uh, we can interact with as intermediaries that, you know, sort of convey our uh, theurgic works to the gods. Which would be and, um, sort of what D was trying to do. Which may be, yeah, a way of interpreting what, what D was trying to do. Now, you know, Pico and Ficino have their own differences, and uh, these guys were looking at you know, the critiques of Iamblichus and the arguments that he was having with Porphyry, which, you know, actually may have turned out to just be a sort of exercise in debate rather than Porphyry actually expressing a bunch of anti-religious ideas, right? right that he right. was actually just sort of being a devil's advocate and giving um, giving Iamblichus some ammunition, right, to respond to. Um, but so, yeah, and, and Pico and Ficino kind of had their own differences over the... Um, the theory of love, which you can find in the symposium, and um, another great example is the uh, the so-called metaphysics of the Parmenides. Plato wrote this very long and difficult dialogue, the Parmenides, which is uh, a bunch of questions about the theory of forms and about the one, and uh, and uh, just sort of um, in the Neoplatonists, it gets articulated into these huge commentaries that are giant bricks of tomes where you're mm-hmm. getting into every little line of this work of Plato, thinking that it conveys allegorical mysteries, right? That there's all this hidden metaphysics in this book. And Plato, uh, Pico, on the other hand, says, no, it's just an exercise, right? It's just sort of um, playing around with these ideas as a kind of intellectual gymnastics. And Pico's idea kind of anticipates what modern scholars think about that dialogue, right? They don't agree with the Neoplatonists who Pico is criticizing, and they don't think that uh, the Parmenides is meant to be this deep metaphysical secret, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not like this big riddle. It's just, a, uh, it's just a series of exercises for thinking about the theories that they're, they're elaborating there. And so in some ways, Pico is kind of hard-headed, and uh, kind of anticipates modern critical scholarship on a lot of this material. He's uh, trying to do um, a new philological project investigating the Kabbalah and trying to establish Jewish sources, which had previously been kind of out of bounds of, of humanistic scholarship because they considered the Talmud to be really irrational and crazy. And, you know, they kind of demonized and abused it, um, mm-hmm. the, the medieval Christians did. And so, you know, they saw the Latin and Greek literature as being the two the two pillars of, of scholarship, and Pico tried to make it three, and he said, well, we've got all this great Hebrew literature too, right? And after Pico, he really initiated this uh, Christian Kabbalist tradition, so all of those guys that you were mentioning, people like Roiklin and Agrippa and, and D and uh, all the other Kunrath great Christian Kabbalists. And, yeah, Kunrath, yeah. Nor von Rosenroth, and Guillaume Pastel, and... Uh, mm-hmm. Giles de Viterbo, all these great guys. Um, that was all sort of inaugurated by Pico saying, look, humanism should be paying attention to this stuff. And he was making kind of scholarly arguments that this is serious material, that it correlates with Christian ideas, right? It's good philosophy. It's good mysticism. Mm-hmm. All of this Jewish mystical material. It's not just nonsense, like has pre- previously advertised. So, I guess in my head, you know, I, I definitely haven't done as much study of, of, of Pico as you have, but I always sort of figured Pico and Ficino were like buddies. I mean, maybe yeah. they were. Maybe they were buddies who disagreed. I've got buddies like that. Part of the problem here is, um, you know, Frances Yates, when she wrote her story of Pico and Ficino in books like uh, Giorno Brand- Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition or... Um, you know, the, the Elizabethan uh, age book oh, that yeah, she wrote, yeah. or the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, all that. You know, she really presents Pico as like this student of Ficino, when really they were kind of more independent and um, they didn't have this master pupil sort of relationship. I mean, Pico was obviously younger and, um, you know, looked up to Ficino in certain ways, but he really saw him as, you know, as like a colleague. Mm-hmm. But they weren't they weren't as close as that as that line of thinking might lead us to believe. You know, they it is true that Pico didn't want to hurt Ficino's feelings and he was reluctant to publish certain things and you know, he was 
at other times not not so much pulling his punches it's it's interesting that there's there's almost like a love-hate relationship there's like a competition mm-hmm. going on and pico is very harsh when he has a criticism he wants to make <laughs> um all right so so then pico all right so Ficino, he was pretty big on this on love also and this concept of love sort of continued to be developed by a lot of Renaissance thinkers and particularly in the occult milieu. I mean, I don't know if they necessarily called themselves occultists, but like, you know, Bruno wrote a lot about it. Uh, I think Agrippa probably has some stuff on it. Um, And I know Ficino definitely talked about it quite a bit. What did Pico think? What was his so I'm that. I'm not really prepared to get into a discussion of the the theory of love today. I'm afraid um, right. that's something that's worth researching. I recommend um, a book to read is uh, Eros and Magic and the Renaissance by Culliano, which is you know this magisterial study of the concept. Oh yeah, um, that's so, a, it's an excellent book. I love I love that book. <laughs> so yeah, you can you can read about you know the differences. Um, I also recommend um, Michael Allen um, in a uh, in an anthology of essays on Pico by M. V. Doherty. Uh, there's a great um, Birthday of Venus article by uh, Michael Allen, which gets into uh, some of the the metaphysical differences. Um, Pico wrote this uh, commentary on a. Uh, on a poem by a friend of his named uh, Benevieni, and um, it's called the Camento. And uh, there's this, you know, th- there's a lot of weird allegory in there, and it might not have been written seriously as like an exposition of Pico's own metaphysical views. So we have to treat it with some caution. Apparently, he might not have wanted it to get out there like later in his life when he became kind of more conservative and, and less, you know, shocking and, and, uh, you know, more mystical and less magical. Um, he might not have wanted to put out the kind of like radical neoplatonic like cosmos that he advances. And, and so even when it comes to the arguments that, that Pico has about the interpretation of Plato's symposium, you know, the theory of love that we find in there mm-hmm. with Ficino, um, there's also a question of what he thought, you know, best suited the kind of Christian propriety that he was trying to advance. You know, I mean, while it was pretty daring that he was advancing these ideas about magic and Kabbalah, I mean, it's really a very kind of scholarly ivory tower kind of argument that he's making. He's not trying to burn it all down. You know, he's not mm-hmm. like this crazy eyes flashing sort of a prophet. Although, I mean, to be fair, he did fall in with uh, Savonarola and got involved in, in some pretty weird politics yeah. for his time. But, you know, he was tr- still trying to be a good Christian, right? He wasn't a heretic. He didn't believe that any of the stuff he was saying was heretical. Um, as uh, as Amos Edelheit points out, you know, he was arguing with the dogmas of the scholastic, like, medieval f- theologians as if those were, like, the doctrines of the church, you know, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, you can believe whatever you want about a scholastic opinion so long as you have true faith. And he kind of differentiated between faith and opinion. And, um, you know, he was he was doing theology and he wasn't quite um, he, he wasn't very tactful about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why the popes, the popes hated the fact that he was doing theology. Right. He was really smart. And he was working on all this um, philosophical and religious material from many different cultures and many different languages that the average theologian at the time did not understand. So the right. people of the Vatican, the people of the Vatican who had to judge him, you know, didn't know how to read all that deeply in Greek, didn't know how to read in Hebrew at all, mm-hmm. right? And how are how are they supposed to make all of this wild material where he just dumps nine hundred conclusions on, <laughs> you know, on Rome and says, "Here, figure all this out," right? I love Let's the, the, the nine hundred conclusions. Uh, it's it's just it's such a ridiculous amount of material, you know. I mean, he's basically he's basically on the cutting edge of all of this new knowledge. And he just gets so fired up. He's just spitting out arguments like crazy. I mean, of course, the church isn't going to be able to keep up. But at the same time, it's kind of dangerous to do that. You know, the, the church, um, I mean, I guess by by the 15th century, the church wasn't doing so hot. And it's not like it was packed full of scholars and deep thinkers at the high level. Like all of the administration were kind of just 
I mean, when Pico started, it was what? Uh, it was whoever was before Alexander the Seventh or whatever, right? Pius. I yeah, I I couldn't give you a, a historical rundown of which popes are one. That's that's something that I should probably get straight in my head, like make a little timeline about that. Oh yeah, but well, yeah, one of the he popes was was so mad at Pico that Pico had to run away to France. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and Medici bailed him out. Oh, that yeah. is my understanding. It must have been Pius the Second. That's what I'm going to guess. Pius the Pius the Second. That makes sense. Yeah, that's so he, that's a familiar name to me. So he uh, he gets all pissed off at Pico. Uh, Pico has to run away to France for a little while. And then this is after Cosimo has died, right? So mm-hmm. Cosimo's son, Lorenzo, agrees to be like Pico's parole officer or something. So Pico's allowed to come back. Uh, and that's around the time that he starts getting in with Savonarola, right? Right. Which, yep. And for those of you guys who don't know out there, Savonarola is like the best... Uh, embodiment of like the mad monk archetype like he's just this so florentine uh, florence is just filled with um with pagan imagery now you know there's like you've got like botticelli and uh michelangelo and like all these dudes doing like paintings of naked people and 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 you know gods having orgies and blah 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 here and there and you've got Ficino with all of his stuff about love and angels and you've got pico doing all of his stuff and everybody's challenging the church and it's decadent and it's just filled it's sensual right you can look at this yeah. i mean you it's can almost look at that. pagan it's absolutely pagan. <laughs> <laughs> they were basically the first neo-pagans. Um, but um, Savonarola is is a extreme reaction to that, where he's sort of he's sort of so strict and so like um, you know, I don't even know how I, his his theology is bizarrely strict. Um, so strict, in fact, that he gets kicked out of the church. Right. Um, But he gets this huge following really quickly. And it's, it, it, to me, when I look back at this, it looks, it just always has this feeling of this, such a bizarre mob mentality, where the mob at first is sort of way on the side of the knee of the, of the pagan movement. Savonarola shows up and the mob just shifts over and now they're all like devout ascetic Christians to the point where like Pico joins his cause, uh, Botticelli joins his cause and like takes a bunch of his artwork out in the street and burns it, which we know now is the bonfire of the vanities where they just destroyed tons of awesome artwork and stuff. Um, And in fact, at some point Savonarola, his uh, faction takes over Florence and then that got put down, and that was the, the the day that Pico was poisoned. Right? Was when um, oh man, the day that Pico was poisoned, and Charles VIII of France rolls into town, taking over. Yeah. Um, and then Ficino has a quote about that. About you know he's he's lamenting uh, Pico's death, but still saying like, oh thank God Charles VIII is here to save us all. Yeah. So savonarola wasn't universally liked i think he was a very polarizing figure i think it's bizarre that pico fell in with him and i wonder how much of that is just a reaction to um pico being censured by the church like Mm -hmm. did he just sort of say you know i might be some sort of crazy angel wizard but this dude over here who's some sort of like crazy ascetic monk also got censured by the church so we should just sort of like hang out together like yeah, the, I don't really know anything about the psychology of why Pico made that decision. You know, I don't know if that's even really received a lot of attention in the scholarship. It's a great question. Yeah, I, it, it, well, I mean, you know, just like the, I think the most baffling Savonarola thing to me is is still just uh, that artists were destroying their own artwork. Right. Yeah. So one thing I'll say about that is if you read this. Um, uh, Edelheit book um, about Ficino, Pico, and um, and the uh, the crisis and and humanist theology. He makes the argument that Pico and Ficino are really responding to the same crisis in Renaissance theology. You know, the same crisis in humanism. Um, they they have different kind of competing takes on it, right? Different competing ways of of doing theology in a new way, right? And uh, whereas Ficino is looking, um, you know, to this. Uh, this like astral magic and talismans and and astrology uh pico rejects astrology and is looking into more cabalistic numerology 
mm-hmm. you know, they they're 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 looking into different resources for tackling this problem, but you know, they're they're still responding to this crisis of theology. And so, I mean, I guess the best answer is that Pico, for whatever reason, saw in Savonarola, um, you know, an alternative to the the problematic sort of theology that the church was doing. That you know that. Uh, I guess, like somehow, Savonarola was still compatible with Pico's highly intellectual, uh, you know, revival of the classics, or or maybe not. You know, I'm not sure yeah. if we can see that as a turn. I don't really know how to uh, to interpret that, but I recommend reading that Ed- Edelheit book, which is something that I'm still uh, tackling myself. Um, for right. anybody who's interested in a lot more about that that theological universe, yeah, that would be fascinating. Well, I know uh, Savonarola was um, was really well read. Like he he was not dumb. He he was right. a very intelligent and weirdly charismatic guy. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating period of time. Um, and just sort of like what came out of the mess of Florence. Like towards the end, it it definitely got messy. The the Demedicis that were left were kind of... They certainly didn't live up to the standards that one would have if they knew uh, Cosmo and Lorenzo. Like, they kind of mm-hmm. got kind of crappy. So you, you had, um, uh, like, that new academy sort of thing that, that Ficino started in, uh, in Florence. Tell me a little bit more about Pico's take on um, Kabbalah. So he's sort of the founder of Christian Kabbalah, what Kabbalistic texts was he reading? Do we know what material he had access to? Yeah, so there's been a lot of great research on that recently. Um, the classical studies um, were done by a guy named Chaim Warzubski, who unfortunately passed away um, in the middle of his project. And so he only had a chance to look at about half of the material that Pico had. Um, so you know, back in the 15th century, Pico being well-connected and being rich, he was able to obtain a lot of rare Kabbalistic texts. And he was able to get them translated by this very interesting kind of roguish, kind of scandalous figure of uh, Flavius Mithridates, who was Wait, a Christian. Flavius Mithridates? Yeah, What kind Mithridates. of name is that? And uh, it's it's a beautiful name, and uh, so he was a Jewish apostate who converted uh-huh. to Christianity, and he's kind of an unreliable narrator as a result. Um, but uh, he was translating for Pico and giving an explanation of the you know sort of secret oral tradition that that goes along with the text, right? So he was making some claims, you know, that may be dubious or may not be, may be kind of biased in a certain direction because he's trying to explain it as a Christian convert to a Christian philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, but they had books like uh, like the Bahir and the Zohar and um, and and they had this, uh, this great parchment. Um, they had a, a book called the... Uh, the gate of light. Um, oh yeah. And so they had a lot of what were not corrupt texts. This is according to Giulio Busi, who's, uh, who's the guy working on the, the Pico project. And so he's got translations of, of the, the texts and introductions and, mm-hmm. you know, puts it all in context and explains it, um, in a lot more updated way than, um, you can also read in where Zibsky's encounter, uh, Pico's encounter with Jewish mysticism, which is also a must read, uh, if you're working on this stuff. Um, there's also some work by Moshe Adel in his research on Italian Kabbalah. Um, so Pico had, you know, some great sources. He had a lot of, a lot of Kabbalistic material. Now his Hebrew was only kind of intermediate, you know, level. Um, when he started the project, he, he was able to kind of compose a letter in Hebrew, right? He, he wasn't able to do, you know, as much as one would hope. And, uh, I mean, he didn't end up living that long. So he, he, he didn't become, you know, the deepest imaginal cab, uh, uh, the deepest Kabbalist we can imagine, but he was actually pretty good at it. And, um, Boosie has pointed out that he, when he doesn't have access to a certain text with a certain theory, he is able to nevertheless reconstruct it because he's a good enough Kabbalist and able to be creative with that material. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of his texts that he had access to when he was in a hurry to finish writing his 900 conclusions happened to be a really good abstract on, you know, explaining a diagram of the Sephirot. So he was able to get, you know, a distilled 
text of authentic Kabbalah that gave a whole lot of information about the Sephirot. For example, um, something I was just recently reading in Busi. So, um, yeah, you got to read Giulio Busi on this material. Um, we're only now finding things out about it. Um, some of the Latin translations that we have of, of, of Pico's Kabbalah, I mean, they haven't even been worked on. They've just been sitting in the Vatican unread for hundreds of years, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I guess Giles of Viterbo did have some of it copied, which then spread out into the Christian Kabbalah that we know about. But a whole lot of Pico's material has just been sitting there unread, like we'd love to have more people working on this stuff. If anybody's interested, all you need to know is the Latin, right? Um, uh, and and it's beginning to be translated into English. Um, so, uh, but it could be that there's material in there that is actually going to help us reconstruct lost Hebrew works of Kabbalah. That would be nice. You know, and and we're talking the early Kabbalah. There's 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 early stuff there. So it's um, you know, it's really great to have this stuff. Uh, it's really cool that Pico did that project. You know, it's sort of um. You know, it was legitimate scholarship back then. It anticipated a kind of scholarship that wasn't even happening in Europe at the time, mm-hmm. and it's it's still a value. It's still a valuable to today to um, Kabbalistic scholars. So it's yeah, it's great material. Not only if you're interested in the Christian Kabbalah, but if you're also interested in the reception of the Hebrew Kabbalah. If you're interested in 15th century Italian Kabbalah, what was being translated into into Latin, you know, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time because it's still, you know, 80 years before uh, Cordovero and, um, I'm sorry, Cordovero, wait. Right, and, 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 uh, Loria, and Loria and all that stuff, yeah. yeah. I will totally look that up, so I'd love to see what they're working on. You know, you, you hear when you read about the Renaissance that all of the crap that was happening in Spain, you know, with the diaspora of the Jews out of Spain and yeah. stuff, that that's how... Yeah, but that's only like two years before... Uh, Pico died, so there's right. probably I would guess that he, he got access to uh, Kabbalistic texts before that. Yeah, he he was yeah he was doing that in what the mid 1480s was when he began his uh, mm-hmm. 1486 was it when he started learning Hebrew and, and doing this Kabbalistic research. Um, sorry, I don't have my notes and dates in front of me, so that's all right. Just make it up. Not it's prepared to give that lecture. Uh, yeah, but yeah, 1480s. Um, so yeah, so like, yeah, I mean, it was only a project that lasted, what, six years before he, you know, it's too bad that he didn't stick around and do more of that research. Yeah, uh, but at but, the same you know, time, think of the weird timing around his death. You know, he's poisoned the day that Charles VIII rolls into town. He's basically like possibly Savonarola's loudest supporter, definitely mm-hmm. one of the most famous and notorious people in Florence at the time. And Savonarola, you know, I don't know how big his support was in, in 1494, but it couldn't have been – Florence must have been a mess. It's very Game of Thrones. Let's just it's say totally that Pico's Game death is very Game of Thrones. Anybody who's a you know literary author – or you know, TV writer or whatever. There's a mini series in this, right? That this oh, should be absolutely. on Netflix, right? Um, this is juicy material. There's also a scene, you know, where Pico um, kidnapped a woman, right? <laughs> and, you know, he was doing this at a, at a chivalry, right? I'm sure. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he was trying to rescue her from her situation. Like he got in trouble. I guess a bunch of his men got killed in this incident. And so like, wow, that once again would be a great thing to write about. I mean, it's interesting to compare that to, uh, the Chaucer case, right? Which, uh, you know, recent information has come up about Chaucer's Raptus case, which might've been a kidnapping or might've been a a rape, but you know, Uh the, the famous middle English literary author, Chaucer, the inventor of the English language as we know it. Right. Um, you know, he was accused and, and exonerated in his day of raptus, and people argue about, like, what's the meaning of raptus? Did he rape this woman? Did he kidnap her, right? You know, what happened there? Wow. Um, so that, you know, there once again, that's an interesting comparison one could make, um, you know, of these, you know, these famous writers and philosophers who get in all kinds of trouble. Um, yeah, and then, uh, but even, um, even Charles VIII's story is kind of weird because he dies, like, on the way back to France or something. So it's just like, even, even, uh, Ficino, he died in what, like 1498 or something like that. Like not very, not much longer, not much later. He was a bit older. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so those are some fascinating times. Um, okay, let's let's uh, let's jump tracks here for a second and talk about your Philip K. Dick tarot deck. Oh, great! Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so we are going to be debuting this deck in August at the Philip K. Dick Festival in Fort Morgan, Colorado, which is where the uh, the late author was buried. Um, so. They have a festival out there. It's less of an academic conference and more of like a meeting of uh, of like-minded individuals. It's it, you know it's for fans and fan scholars and you know people who are just like super into the work of Dick. You don't necessarily have to be like an academic or anything like that. Um, although I have will will Jay be there? Jay Kinney. Oh, Jay Kinney. You know I've met Jay. I, I got to meet him through a John Shirley party one day. Uh, if you've got his email, send it along to me because I've misplaced it. Oh yeah, Jay um, and I—I've known Jay for a zillion years now. He's a—he's oh, an old buddy get of mine. Get me in touch. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd love to get it. I've been meaning to message him, but I just searched my email and couldn't find it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I had fun hanging out with that guy. Um, yeah, I was. I—I uh, I, I told him, you know, like some fawning fanboy thing. I was just like, you mm-hmm. know, your work is so meaningful to me, or whatever. He's like, you know, that's what I told the uh, the creator of Mad Magazine and. <laughs> uh, I don't even remember the funny quip that he had. I hope I remember it sometime. Um, yeah, he was an early commenter on uh, Philip K. Dick's exegesis. Yeah. So that's how I was... first heard of him. I'm sorry, but let, go ahead and tell your Kenny story. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I mean, I've known Jane for a long time, but when there was a, uh, a Philip K. Dick documentary that came out on Netflix maybe like 10 years ago, I don't know. It right. was a while back. And I was like, oh, Philip K. Dick, this might be interesting. And I start watching it, and there's Jay. And I'm like, there he oh. Is. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that okay, so so I was looking at the tarot deck. I was sort of looking at some of the images. The artwork is really cool. You've got a – are you doing the art, or you've got somebody helping you out? Uh, so I uh, – five years ago, I met this fellow, um, Christopher Wilkie, who's doing the art. Um, I'm sort of the designer, writer. Um, I'm the systems guy, you know, so I did all of the correlation of the uh, – the elements of Philip K. Dick's writing, his characters, his novels, you know, his titles sometimes. And then also the like mystical ideas that he came up with, like the, the black iron prison or the pink beam from Valis or, Mm -hmm. you know, um, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, I remember when I first thought of this, it's like way back in college, like almost 20 years ago, um, I thought, you know, Palmer Eldritch is sort of like the devil and, oh, we got a tarot here. You know, the Black Iron Prison is the tower and uh, mm-hmm. and and it all just sort of fell into place. And I, I, I realized that the symbolism of the tarot was the best way to kind of express the esoteric system that Philip K. Dick was trying to design. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of, you know, kind of showing the esoteric side of Philip K. Dick to people who are, you know, just fans of his characters and, and uh, weird sci-fi objects and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, trying to explain the the mystical stuff to the sci-fi people. And, uh, you know, Dick w- wrote this 9,000 pages of notes called his exegesis. It runs to like a million <laughs> words, often handwritten, you know, scrawled in the middle of the night on some crazy bender of writing. And, uh, you know, he had these weird visionary experiences. Um, he novelized them as Radio Free Albemuth and Vallis. There was recently a great movie made of uh, Radio Free Albemuth, so you can actually see the you know the Vallis story uh, on film. Wait, there's a um, Vallis like a oh huh? There's a up. yeah. There was an independent film Radio Free Albemuth. I had the pleasure of working on promoting it and the Kickstarter and stuff. Uh, I pasted flyers all around Berkeley for the opening weekend. Um, great independent film. It's got some great actors. It's got the late Scott Wilson from The Walking Dead. It's got uh, Shea Wiggum, who was in stuff like Boardwalk Empire. And it's got Catherine Winnick, who I remember from a Hellraiser movie, but everybody probably knows from Vikings. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I highly cool. recommend that uh, that film if All you're right. interested in the Vallis story. That's That and the Robert Crumb comic are the best ways to become familiar with the religious experience of Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. uh, which is really what I'm trying to capture in the tarot i do my you know research partly on the esoteric stuff in the renaissance but partly also in the reception of that material in people like philip k dick robert ant wilson terence mckenna um which you can read about in a great book uh, by eric davis just came out high weirdness i can't stop saying nice things about Um, oh man eric davis i've been hearing his name a lot lately but so you know dick was a reader of francis yates uh which i found out um are you seriously 
Yeah, I found out through Pamela Jackson that he borrowed a copy of the Rosicrucian Enlightenment from somebody, probably K.W. Jetterer or maybe Tim Powers. I need to ask these guys about it one of these days. Wait, the um, Tim Powers? Like Tim Powers, the novelist? Right, yeah, yeah, and K.W. Jetter, also um, mm. most well-known novelist, who were friends of Dick's at the time and the uh, in the period when he was going through his religious experiences. And so, um, so yeah, Dick... I, I discovered the Dick read Francis Yates through textual analysis, and I had to confirm it with Pamela Jackson, who's the only person who's read all 9,000 pages of exegesis. So somewhere in some unpublished note, Dick mentions reading the Rosicrucian Enlightenment. And when he describes in the appendix of Vallis his, you know, his take on uh, people like Paracelsus, Giordano Bruno, and uh, Jakob Burma, his idea of what the hermetic alchemists were supposedly looking for with this entity made of information that was buried with the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Gospels. Um, he's basically articulating a theory of hermeticism that sounds a lot like Francis Yates, right? Huh. Uh, so that's what my first conference paper about Dick and alchemy and hermeticism and whatever it was, uh, was all about. And I'm working on a book about uh, Dick and Hermeticism, or rather Dick and Esotericism, but but a lot of it is uh, is a view of Hermeticism that's kind of inspired by the Rosicrucian movement, um, and then refined by these scholarly takes of Francis Yates, and uh, that was also a big inf uh, influence on Terence McKenna, and Robert Anton Wilson writes about a conversation he had with Timothy Leary about it in the Cosmic Trigger. So yeah, one of the one of the kind of uh, you know hidden histories of psychedelia is that the Yates thesis had its uh, had its impact on some of the. Um, you know, some of the greats in psychedelic writing of the 70s. So long story short, that's what my tarot deck is about. And oh, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm still trying to take in this stuff. I, I, I totally did not realize that, that Dick had read Yeats. I also didn't realize that any of those other guys knew anything about Yeats either. Like, that's well, just fascinating to me. Well, if you had been at me. UC Davis to see my presentation, you might have known back in 2006. Or, or no, no, that was... Oh, I forget what year that was, 2015, whenever it was that I presented on Dick and uh, and Alchemy. Um, you might have heard, but no, this is yeah, this is kind of underground stuff. I mean, this yeah, is this is what crazy. I'm what I'm discovering and working on. You can listen to a couple of my podcasts if you go to my Twitter feed. I think it's linked in the bio. Okay, uh, where right. I did a I did a couple of interviews with a, a podcast called the Occult Sentinel, I believe, Joe Moore's podcast, where I talked all about my research on Dick and esotericism, and um, I. I've also recorded my conference paper that I did at UC Davis sometime in the early 2010s, like 2012 or thereabouts, uh, uh, where I talk about the Francis Yates connection and the Paracelsus, Jacob Burma, and um, whatever. Dick was also interested in Neoplatonism, and he had um, basically an encyclopedia article about Plotinus. So I've also given a talk about Dick and Plotinus and Neoplatonism. That was at the San Francisco Philip K. Dick Fest around the same time. That one was definitely in 2012. Okay. Um, so yeah, if you want to learn more about that, um, I, I did talk about that in those little those little pieces. You can read the appendix to Vallis where he talks about these guys. Um, but yeah, the Francis Yates thing I had to figure out on my own, and I had to. I, I, it was, it was actually an email that Eric Davis sent to Pamela Jackson confirming uh, <laughs> confirming the Francis Yates stuff. But uh, yeah, anybody who's interested who happens to know K.W. Jeter or uh, Tim Powers and could ask them about that. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked I've talked to Tessa about it, and she doesn't really remember anything that would be useful. She's told me some interesting stuff, though. Um, and well, I also used to work for um, Philip K. Dick's ex-girlfriend, Grania Davis, the late and lamented uh, author in her own right. Um, she was an amazing, you know, just sort of a tower of the local San Francisco sci-fi community and uh, had a lot to say that uh, that kind of initiated me into that scene. Yeah. I, it, I mean, it sounds like there's a ridiculous amount of material there. I mean, I mean, you've kind of blown me away with the stuff that you've already told me. So I kind of need to think about that for a second. So let's go a little technical on the tarot deck. So you said that you based it on um, Philip K. Dick's religious experiences, or you wanted to sort of get that across. Are you using a lot of imagery and characters from his um, from his novels? Yeah, so I'm taking characters from his novels, like I mentioned, Palmer Eldritch is the devil. Um, Joe Chip and Glenn Runciter from Ubik uh, mm -hmm. play a role. Um, the crap artist uh, from uh, Confessions of a Crap Artist becomes the fool character because I think he's the 
you know, the archetypal fool in PKD. And uh, you might also see the tire regroover at some point, uh, <laughs> which was the job that the guy had, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like I, I, I realized as I was writing the, um, the oracular sentences, there's one sentence with like a kind of divinatory <laughs> mystical uh, riddle that goes with each card um, that I was very, I was slanting it in a very kind of anti-capitalist direction because I think one of my major critical takes on dick is that he's just a thoroughgoing religious anti-capitalist writer mm-hmm. um and a lot of the uh a lot of the characters and and scenes and and world building um you know really adds up to his critique of how capitalism creates and forces um unreal worlds on us right mm-hmm. capitalism forces all these dubious realities all of these spurious realities on us and uh you know, he he sort of sees mystical salvation as a way out of a false reality. So I'm using the you know the traditional symbology of the tarot. We kept the four elements. You know, we kept having ten pip cards and we kept having four court cards. Um, we're we're both mostly familiar with the uh, the Aleister Crowley Thoth tarot, uh, the Rider Waite tarot, and and other like kind of Golden Dawn. Mm-hmm. era interpretations of the tarot deck i'm a fan of the tabby cicero deck which uses the uh, authentic uh, golden dawn coloring system and i was also inter- influenced by lon malo duquette's uh, ceremonial magic tarot the way that he in- integrates stuff like the the demons of the goetia into the uh, <laughs> into the tarot right and so uh, so christopher the artist uh, had the idea of integrating the I Ching, which i signed up for and uh, oh, that, that plays totally a role makes too. Sense. Yeah. So yeah. So the I Ching is kind of mapped out onto the cards in a way that uh, I let him take the lead on. And you know, Christopher knows a lot about Dick himself. So there's all kinds of stuff that he's put into the art that I haven't even seen necessarily yet. You know, or I've signed off on, but I haven't studied. You know, very closely. So he's putting all kinds of little references. So one of the ex-wife cards, you know, is holding a is holding a can of um of horse meat from the uh, the pet food store where Dick used to go buy horse meat when he was really poor. Right. right and, right. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of subtle biographical references that, uh, you know, that, that Christopher who knows his Dick very well, um, has put in there too. So it's, uh, you know, it's really just a, uh, it's just a labor of love on the part of both of us putting in as much as we could. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's a funny story about that towards the end of the project, I sort of woke up in a cold sweat one night and I thought, you know, we don't have an eye in the sky card. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do? And, you know, I emailed Christopher about it and uh, he was having trouble with finding a design for the orthogonal time card, which I think is covered in the black iron prison anyway. Right. So uh, so we ended up putting eye in the sky in that spot. And it was perfect because uh, part of the Glenn Runciter sentence was there's no eye in the sky in team. And I was able to just put that into the eye in the sky and keep the sense about graffiti for Glenn Runciter. So that's just one example of the, the, the fun I was having with the design. So your court cards are not, they aren't named like, um, Prince, princess, king, queen there. Yeah. You else. might, you might find things more like the dark haired girl of, uh, of swords or, uh, ah. or the, the, the boss of wands. <laughs> and then in the major arcana, you have kind of mixed stuff up. So you mentioned there's a fool card, but like you must have changed a bunch of the major arcana to fit more of the big. Yeah, concepts. they've they've been changed a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, like we we have cards that that sometimes come close, or sometimes might be you know a little bit uh, a little bit off. Like I forget if I used uh, the pink beam was the chariot, right? So there's there's some <laughs> of the symbolism of the chariot there and uh, I did what I could to preserve the original structure of the tarot, but um you know for the most part I had to make you know take artistic liberties and the Philip K Dick stuff is going to win out over mm-hmm. the uh, the original symbolism. Um so yeah, it's uh, it's not what I would call a uh, you know one to one correspondence and I think that we ended up with um with 24 instead of 22 trump cards um yeah so so it it, it's an 80 card deck it's not a 78 card deck um so it's 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 not meant to be uh you know it's not that i i don't believe that there's an authentic set of 
tarot attributions out there anyways, right? Like having done a little bit of research I on totally the history of the tarot, right? You know, you can see that Eliphas Levy, right, I believe was the guy who made up the connection of tarot and Kabbalah out of whole cloth. And, mm -hmm. you know, before then, like nobody was reading it that way. And this whole elaborate golden dawn structure, I mean, it's a beautiful structure, right? But it's kind of... It's oh, kind yeah. of built on sand in a way, and you know, I mean. Well, I mean, even Waits in a in a letter, he he uh, he expressed a lot of doubts about the ties between the uh, Kabbalistic stuff and tarot. He's like, yeah, I, and, I just don't know. I've been working with this for years, and I still don't see it. <laughs> and mapping it out onto the astrological deacons and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all like great stuff, and it's like if we're a microcosm, macrocosm, like it doesn't need to be authentic to be, you know, something that makes sense. You know, like I was saying about Pico being able to extrapolate from a Kabbalistic text that he did have to figure out something that was in a text that he didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. We can make creative use of this material and still not be going totally wrong, especially when you're trying to think of this as like a mystical tool rather than a intellectual exercise in finding the truth about, you know, the, the lineage of these esoteric transmissions oh, and, absolutely. you know, throughout I mean, history. Somebody made all of it up originally anyhow. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it's fun, you know, and, and so, like, I don't believe that there really is a, you know, sacred structure of tarot that, you know, I mean, I think there's all kinds of interesting resonances in the structure that are important, and so I wanted to keep as much of it as possible. But we felt free to kind of branch out, and uh, in addition to the I Ching integration, we've also got some games that you can play with the, uh, hmm. with the deck. Christopher's working on the text of that, so I can't say too much about the games. And, um, you know, we're going to be putting out a bigger book later with a lot more. We're, we're going to have full-page interpretations of every card explaining how we wove the symbolism together and artist notes and, you know, more mystical suggestions and meditations and all that, um, which is all exercises that I'm doing, you know, to kill two birds with one stone to prepare me to write this book on Dick and esotericism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I believe that in a way like Dick was designing his own esoteric system and he kind of gave that to us. We've already seen Dick's influence as, you know, giving a certain flavor of Gnosticism to the world, right? He popularized right. Gnosticism. He, you know, he was rooted in people like Carl Jung, like he was, you know, like Joseph Campbell, he was such a fan of Star Wars and everything. I mean, um, you know, Dick really like transmitted Gnosticism in this special way, like through science fiction and psychedelia to the counterculture in America. And, uh, you know, we have him to thank for, I, I believe, a, a sort of a Gnostic church, right? There's kind of just like a collection of Phil Dickian magi out there who have been inspired by this guy and, you know, by what he gave us. So, uh, so through the tarot, I'm trying to kind of pay tribute to that and kind of, um, if not formalize it, because I don't believe that it should be formalized. Um, you know, it's just showing one way that you can do an interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. And using the tarot as a kind of a language to write that interpretation. I don't believe I'm giving you, you know, the last word on what Dick meant by the pink beam, right? But, uh, <laughs> but I do believe that it can be assembled into a coherent esoteric tool like a tarot deck. And this deck will be ready in August? In August, yeah, and you can pre-order it right now through Wide Books, and uh, I believe I've given you the link. Um, so we'll, yes, you know, we can link uh, this podcast to the uh, pre-order site. And what you got to do, if you're attending the festival in Colorado, you just donate forty bucks to the festival, and you'll get your deck. Um, and if you need to have it shipped, you can add four fifty for uh, domestic and uh, twenty five bucks for international shipping. Okay, all right, I will make sure. That there's a link down in the show notes. That sounds that sounds really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Please pre-order. We need uh, we need those pre-orders. Uh, I'm not sure if we can guarantee availability beyond you know the festival. So you know if you really want to get your hands on this, uh, you know you got to pre-order it. I don't know if we're going to be able to you know fly under the radar of the litigious PKD estate if we're going to you know have any difficulty with that and. You also have a, an alchemy coloring book that's either out that or coming is a, out? In, in production, uh, we've got about 12 of the designs finished. I'd like to get a few more of the, the designs that I really wanted to get in there um, going. And, you know, there's there's kind of limited funding for me to pay the artist I've, I've mm -hmm. got working on that. Um, uh, we're we're going to do, yeah, like it's – the emblems from classical woodcuts like A Talent of Fugiens by Michael Meyer or um, no, like Illuminate Manuscripts, or like, uh, yeah, those kind of things. Okay. Um, the Splendor Solace, um, the, um, 
the Moodus Liber, uh, all these beautiful old books, um, and uh, just trying to get some of the main um, creatures and uh, you know mottos of alchemy illustrated. Uh, so my graphic designer takes the old woodcuts and uh, he uses a vector graphics program um, to retrace them and uh, takes out all of the cross hatching and the gray areas and whatnot so that it looks more like a coloring book image, mm-hmm. but it's drawn directly from the, um, you know, the originals. Another one we've got is the Rosicrucian mountain of initiation allegory, you know, where mm-hmm. somebody's encountering all these alchemical symbols as they, uh, they rise up the mountain. So, uh, so it, it was originally conceived as more of a, a kind of an academic thing where I'd be writing these dense descriptions full of footnotes and pitch it as like an undergraduate scholarly textbook. But, you know, I'm finding that I don't have the time to research and write all that. And we're probably going to put out a more basic version with with some brief descriptions, you know, explaining. But it's not going to be a, you know, really heavy, dense text. It's going to be more just for fun, like an adult coloring book. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I've got a, um, a coloring book based on the uh, Rider Waits uh, Major Arcana. That's pretty fun. Oh, great, yeah. yeah. Um, have you considered doing a Kickstarter for the coloring book? You know, that's not a bad idea. Um, I think it's an amazing idea. I, I haven't had... <laughs> all sorts of success with crowdfunding so far. Yeah. So I, you know, I really need a, I need a crowdfunding guru or something to help me figure out how to pitch these things. But yeah, that's definitely something I feel like we should, we're trying to just put together, a, you know, a little finished product that, that is like a proof of concept. And then maybe mm-hmm. from there we'll go and, you know, kickstart a 200 page al- alchemy coloring book with all of those, you know, scholarly uh, writings that I want to do and everything. I could definitely see making it more and more ambitious. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually I'd love to write like the undergraduate textbook. Another one of my projects that is that is sort of a year late is um, to do an online course about seven or ten of those most famous alchemical illustration books, which would be building on a course that I designed and taught way back in grad school at Star King at the Graduate Theological Union. I taught a little course called uh, Illustrations of the Alchemical Art or Images of the Alchemical Art, something mm. like that. It's a fun little course for grad students. And one of my students who came to that class, Lissa Deerham, needed an alchemy class because she was writing her thesis about Hermeticism in Swedenborg. And so I got this great uh, paper on uh, alchemy in Swedenborg. And, you know, it's she was a just a whole like, other school right of in, angelology there, huh? Right in on the current events uh, in that field. And, you know, later on I saw her like, uh, you know, her professor give a talk that incorporated some of that, you know, those, those kind of findings. So yeah, you know, um, you know, Blake commented about how Swedenborg was similar to that, that tradition that PKD was interested in, right? Like when Blake said that, uh, one could with one's mechanical talents, take the works of Paracelsus and mechanically crank out a Swedenborg. <laughs> <laughs> Ted, I can't believe how much stuff we've managed to cram into our talk. Uh, yeah, it's been dense. I yeah. didn't even get to talk about the Hypnerotomachia. Oh, I even brought mine up. Look, I've got it right here. <laughs> uh, to be continued, then. We'll have to do another show, maybe. Let's just promise everybody we're going to do another show. It's going to be all about the Hypnerotomachia polyphily. Art of memory, alchemy, uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be great. Yeah, and in the meantime, you've sort of like listed off a ton of stuff that, you know, my, my dilettantish uh, approach to studying Pico and uh, Ficino has, now I just have more shit to read. Check it out. Get back to me with questions. I'm oh. always happy to talk about this material. I will. This is you, great. You've given me a few things that I need to be more solid on, you know, that I wasn't quite prepared to expound on in a little chat yeah well next time huh okay so then all right so i have uh so in the show notes there will be a link to the tarot deck thing on wide books uh i'll put a link to your publishing company for the alchemy coloring book oh yeah thriceblessedpress.com yeah bit of a mouthful but i feel like it captures my brand why don't you tell people how to find you on like Twitter and Oh Instagram sure, yeah. I'm at T3DY on Twitter and um I couldn't get T3DY on Instagram because some rapper has it, so I'm at T3DY hand on Instagram. And you can get me Ted.hand on Gmail if you want to uh ask me any you know more involved questions. Alright, I will do you a favor and I will not link your email address in the show notes. 
because that'll just you'll that'll be that'll just open the floodgates. Yeah. Uh, Have you listened to um, T3DY the rapper? I, you know, I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, Maybe we'll it, see if we it's, can... <laughs> it's charming that somebody has picked up on my old uh, AOL handle from the 90s inspired by Are You Serious' Cyberpunk fake book. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked into the fella. We should uh, have a rap battle sometime. I've got a little bit of freestyle skills myself. Oh, yeah? You want to you wanna wrap the episode up? <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy Podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.